Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. It's my great pleasure to welcome you, and especially to welcome uh, Dana Bash, who is the uh, congressional correspondent, longtime congressional correspondent, if you can consider 2006 a long time. It is a long time, actually. Um, for CNN, uh, Dana's had a very distinguished career at CNN, and her whole career has been at CNN, and all of it's been spent in Washington. And she has covered Washington from the Washington Bureau, the White House, uh, and so forth. She's done just about everything that can be done there. And she has then, therefore, been able to watch it change over time. And I'm hoping that she will address some of that in her remarks today. Uh, we're very glad to have you. The, the uh, hashtag, by the way, if any of you are, are uh, tweeting, is uh, Dana Bash. Just the, the crosshatch and then uh, Dana Bash. Uh, Dana, welcome. We're very glad to have you. you. And uh, the floor is yours, and then we'll have some questions. Sure. Okay. And I won't. I won't speak too long because I think uh, everybody's going to be more interested in what they want to hear about as opposed to what I think you want to hear about. But thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It really is, and it's great to see my friend Peter. You all are very lucky that that he's here. He's definitely one of the stars of CNN. So we're very lucky to have him as well. We'll wait for him to come back. Um, so, you know, I was asked to speak about what I do, which is covering Congress, and, and I was trying to figure out, you know, maybe what's the, one of the top questions that you might have, because it's the top question that I get wherever I go, which is, is it really as bad as it seems? And unfortunately, I'm here to report, when you get up close and personal, it's actually worse. <laughs> but I'm going to end with the pessimism. I'll start with the pessimism, and I'm going to end with the optimism, okay? So there is some light at the end of this tunnel. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that it's, that it's worse is because you were saying, Alex, that you know, I've been covering it for more than a few years. And it used to be not that long ago that somebody like me, a reporter, would stand in a hallway for endless hours as members of Congress were in a room trying to hash out a deal on some piece of legislation. And we would stand outside, and it wasn't so much about whether there would be a deal, it's when would there be a deal and what would it look like. Now it's will there be a deal. It's just, it, it's, it's very, very different. Um, you know, you sort of always knew that the adults in the room would, would figure it out and now you're just not so sure. So the next obvious question is, well, why is that? And there is definitely no one answer, um, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about, I think, some of the reasons why that is. Um, and the first is, something that I think every human being can relate to, which is that members of Congress just don't have the personal relationships that they used to that allows them to, even if they completely disagree with somebody's politics or policies or philosophy, at least understand where they're coming from. And that is so invaluable in every, everybody's life, but particularly when you're talking about negotiating, and especially when you're negotiating public policy on the, high, on the highest level. And why don't they have the relationships that they used to? It's because, for, for a number of reasons. One is um, the, the, the uh, idea of bringing your family to Washington almost doesn't exist anymore. I, when I was very young, I lived in Northern Virginia. I went to elementary school there. And I went to school with a lot of, I know, Peter, you did too in, in Virginia, with a lot of kids of members of Congress, of senators, because they moved their families there. It doesn't happen anymore. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that, but I think the biggest is because you know, people are, are accused of being inside Washington and inside the Beltway if they, if they actually stay in Washington with their families. So what that means is that the work weeks tend to be shorter. Members are there maybe from like Tuesday morning, Tuesday night sometimes to Thursday night. They're not around each other as much because they go back home to see their families uh, and, to, and to their districts and states. And because it's so compressed, they just you know, they don't have the relationships. They don't do what they used to do, which is go out for a scotch or a beer or a Coke. And it just doesn't happen anymore. And, um, and then when they are there, particularly when you're talking about the House, which 
they run every two years, which means that they run always. They are running off to, to raise money. Uh, every minute that they have, particularly after hours, is working the phone, getting dollars, going to fundraisers, and, uh, and they don't have time to just kick back and understand each other, which is really unfortunate. Uh, another thing that I definitely think is, is an issue is that the internet is a wonderful thing. I mean, I have an iPad. We all use the internet all day long. It's fabulous. It's changed our world for the better by far. But it's also a really scary place if you're a politician. And I really, I have felt it as the internet has become much more prevalent that they shut down because they're afraid of what's going to end up on the internet, on Twitter, on, 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 you know, everywhere, on the blogs in particular. And that's not just the case with reporters. It's also because of each, of each other. And, you know, they're worried about what they're, if you're a Republican, what the conservatives' blogs are going to say about you, if you're a Democrat, what the liberal blogs are going to say about you. And it really has made things um, sort of more, more polarized. But I think maybe the biggest reason why things have gotten worse is redistricting when it comes to the House and gerrymandering. Um, I just want to share some statistics that, that Charlie Koch of the Koch Report put out, which to me, I think, says it all. 74 of 435 House members in this past election won elections with 55% or less. So the flip side of that is 361 House members won races with over 55% of the vote. So what that means is that when it gets to the general election, most of these members are fine. They're not worried if they're a Republican so much about appealing to the Democrats in their district because they'll be okay because it's a Republican district. They're not worried if they're a Democrat appealing to the Republicans in their district because there aren't any and there are enough Democrats to elect them. The worry, it's not, that, it's not that they're not worried politically, their big worry politically, if they're a Democrat, is doing something that will anger the base that will get, uh, cause a Democratic primary challenge. If they're a Republican, doing something that will anger the Republican base that will cause a, uh, a Republican primary challenge. So that means that everything is moving further, instead of going this way, moving further and further this way because they're appealing to their wings as opposed to the middle. And it's not just a theory, it's not just numbers. I hear it from members, um, not, not on the record, and, and, and sometimes from leadership sources who are sort of reporting on why they can or can't do a certain piece of legislation this way or that way, it's because they're worried about being primaried. I mean, primaried is, is, is a verb that is used, I mean, I don't even think it's really a, a, a verb, but it is now. Um, and, and, it is, and it is a big concern. And, and in recent history, I mean, just look, for example, um, this is in the Senate, not the House, but Richard Lugar, there's no way he was ever, he was gonna be in that seat forever, if not for the fact that he was primaried. And, and there were lots of reasons for that, um, but you know, primarily it was because the, the Republican primary voters didn't want him. They wanted somebody who was seen as more conservative because he crossed over the line too much, which by the way, wasn't even that much. And he was gone. And oops, what happened in the end? A Democrat won the seat because the guy was too conservative for the, for the state. And he made some tactical and verbal errors, which we won't go into now. But, um, and then on the Democratic side, um, in the House, one example that I think of is Jason Altmaier. He was a Democratic congressman from Pennsylvania, from a very conservative district. He did everything right. He voted against Obamacare. He voted, he voted with Republicans so much more than most Democrats did because he thought that that was the right thing to do for his district, which I think technically was probably true. He was being most true to his constituents, but he got defeated by a liberal Democrat in an election, a primary election of Democratic voters. And so, um, so I think that is by far one of the biggest problems that, that I see in here all the time. Now I'm going to get, get optimistic before I start uh, taking your questions. I think that what we've seen in the past month or so of President Obama reaching out, ha coming up to the Hill, having dinners, yes, a lot of it is for the cameras. A lot of it is because he's gotten a lot of, of, forgive me, but crap for not doing it enough. Because I, I believe it is the role of the president to do that, and I think other people do too. But it, it can't hurt, and it hasn't hurt. It, it absolutely has helped. Um, it, and there's another dinner coming up that the president is going to have that Johnny Isaacson of Georgia is arranging. He's a Republican. He's arranging an, an additional maybe 12 or so uh, Republicans to sit down with him off the record, probably off-site, you know, neutral ground, not at the White House, not at, on the Hill. 
And so that is hopefully changing a little bit. Uh, and the other thing that, I mean, I did a story yesterday on the fact that elections do have consequences. And one of the consequences from the last election is that there is much more optimism than ever before, at least since 2006 or seven, that a big controversial piece of legislation, immigration reform, is going to happen. And when I say elections have consequences, you've actually had four Democrats and four Republicans sitting in a room for about four months working on something incredibly toxic, and they have a deal, pretty much. I mean, it's not done until it's done, and anything can, 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 can um, overturn it. But the fact that they've even gotten to this point, um, I think, is a reason for, for optimism. And, and we know the reason why, because of cold, hard politics, which is that President Obama won 71% of the Hispanic vote. Mitt Romney just got absolutely crushed. And Republicans realize they've got to do something. So I will leave you with that optimistic note. And um, I'm glad, again, very glad to be here. Thank you very much. Glad to have you. Let me, I'm going to ask the first couple of questions, and then we'll open it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of lobbyists now? I mean, for instance, the Gang of Eight, the immigration mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that was being touted is that the Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. and the AFL-CIO, mm -hmm. two big lobbying mm -hmm. enterprises on the other polar opposite sides of the political equation, had found a way themselves to sort of make a deal. Yep. How much of this is from the politics of real politic? Mm -hmm. Is the politicians working together? How much of it is the lobbyists who are basically making a different kind of calculation about what's in their own best interest? Honestly, it's both. In this, in this situation, it's, I think, most fascinating because um, he's referring to the fact that the final piece of the puzzle for this tentative <laughs> deal uh, was that the, the, a guest worker program, forgive me, I'll stop if you guys all know this, but the, a guest worker program, which has been you know, elusive for years, decades, really, because the Chamber of Commerce wanted to have, you know, unlimited number of people come in because they, they wanted to pay them low wages and and labor did not want very many to come in because they would compete with Americans wages and it would pull everybody's wages down so they came up with the deal um, which is which is sort of a complicated formula and how to do it with relation to the economy when the economy is bad there'll fewer people coming in when the economy is good there'll be more people coming in and so forth um, they're lobbyists, but they're also the, the term that all of the members and the, and the, and the, and the negotiators like to use is stakeholders. Um, they're both. And in this particular case, these stakeholders are <coughs> incredibly important. They're absolutely critical. You, they, they, neither side could do it without them because uh, the Chamber of Commerce is, is, is so powerful when it comes to Republicans, and, and the labor unions are still not as powerful, but still pretty powerful when it comes to Democrats. So, yeah, they were very upfront. They, when I say they, I mean like Schumer's office, the aides I was talking to and others, that these guys were working, they were working alone until the very end where they just kind of reached a, 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 a stalemate and then Schumer came in and, and he, Schumer was, broke, instead of them helping broker a deal among senators, Schumer brokered a deal among the member, among the, the interest or stakeholders. Um, so that's a great example of, of course, they're lobbyists, um, but uh, of, of outside groups having an incredible amount of influence. One other question, then we'll open it. <clears throat> One of the things that from the outside appears to be the case is that the people who are elected as part of the Tea Party mm -hmm. uh, are so rigid that they are prepared to, you know, sacrifice anything for the sake of of, uh, of, a, of a principle. And I realize that they are now politicians as well as mm -hmm. people who are elected with a mandate to sh you know, shut down government. I just wonder when you get up close and personal, as you said, with mm -hmm. these individuals, mm -hmm. do they say a different thing than the way they frame themselves and the way they present mm -hmm. to, the, uh, to the world at large? Are they more flexible? Are they do they, do they understand the need for compromise in a way that they don't seem to make any uh, accommodation for in front of cameras? That's a great question. Um, for the most part, no. They are, they are they what are they what are. They are what they seem. They are what they are. And, and when I say they, it's sort of hard to, you know, we, we all like this to call it, you know, Tea Party, but that's so, it's such an amorphous thing. You know, it really sort of depends on, on, on who the, the, the people are. But 
in general, let's just talk about the class of 2010, the House Republican class of 2010, because they were the ones who came in the, the Tea Party wave. For the most part, yeah, I mean, when you talk, I talked to them in the hallways, and, and by the way, that's one of the best things about covering Congress, as opposed to the White House, which I covered four years, is you actually talk to the people you cover. And, and when it comes to this particular caucus, they do, they came here, they came to Washington for a very specific reason, and they genuinely, for the most part, believe in their principles. Having said that, they also have, um, since that was two, two elections ago, um, many of them have, uh, have evolved in their sophistication you know, and, and I'm not, I don't mean that as a, no, as a no, patronizing I, I take, way to say no, no, it. No, I take your point. I don't mean that as a, way, a patronizing way to say it because even they, they admit this. Uh, and one example of how they have evolved um, is just their agreement a few months ago to not fight the fight on the debt ceiling and right then and there, meaning right after they came in, and to agree to raise the debt ceiling without the spending cuts that they wanted because they saw the strategy it, you know, they, they weren't just standing on principle. They saw they were able to be convinced that the best strategy for them to get the result that they're looking for was to wait a few months and to do it in, in the spring and the, the summer. We're going to have the fight. Um, that never would have happened when they first came in. But I think that they are getting a better understanding of the art of legislating and that you don't always get what you want. It's just that's what legislating is. Mm. Let me offer, uh, open the floor to students first, and uh, if there are students here who have questions, just uh, you know, please go to the mic, and we will we will go from there. And if yeah, okay. Hi, my name is Sam Ward. I'm a mid-career MPA student. Hi. I am interested in the long term. Eventually, when the Democrats uh, take over the House and the Republicans take over the Senate, will there continue? <laughs> will there continue to be this fighting, or will it break? Uh, eventually. Um, when yeah. is that going to be? By yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it will happen eventually. <laughs> I have no idea when, but is this the new normal? I, I mean, if I could answer that question, I would, uh, you know, I would, with, with, with certainty, um, I would, probably wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be off billionaire somewhere because I would be able to predict the future. But I, I think that it is the new normal and it, for the reasons that I just described. I mean, nothing is going to change when it comes to fundraising. I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court, at least in the near future, the Supreme Court made that clear. Um, nothing's going to, the internet, you're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. It, it's here to stay. Um, and uh, I think that the only thing that, that will, um, the, the thing that does tend to change things is when there isn't divided government. And it's not always for the better, by the way. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of people were very happy when the Democrats completely controlled all of Washington the first two years of Obama's presidency that they were able to get health care reform. But it also kind of lit up the Tea Party uh, movement out there, and, you know, it created this, this, this tumult. Um, so well, a, lot well, of things are, a lot of things are here to stay. Um, but as much as I was sort of pessimistic about some of it, it's not always such a bad thing to have divided government. Will a better economy blunt the Tea Party, do you think? Um, possibly. Possibly. I think already the, the, the whole, um, well, you can look at it two ways. One way is that, you know, there's the, the narrative now is that the, the, the Tea Party doesn't have the, the whack, you know, the, 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 the punch that it used to. The flip side of that, the way I see it, is that the whole conversation is now is on their terms. I mean, the entire discussion is on their turf. What are we talking about? We're talking about how you cut spending, how you, how you attack the debt and the deficit. That's all because... They Are they going to, will the Tea Party take an anti-position on this immigration bill that's coming up? You know, that's going to be interesting to see because, um, you know, again, when you talk about the Tea Party, no, there's I, so many I, different factions. I yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. far right. They're yeah. Well, for the most part, they're about, um, about economics, mm -hmm. right? You know, they're, they're, and so if, if they're true to that, then they should technically, philosophically, when it comes to principles, maybe be for uh, 
immigration reform because it should technically help the economy, um, bringing people out of the shadows and so forth. Uh, But a lot of people who are conservatives who align themselves with the Tea Party are also conservatives who are, are, you know, socially conservative and for for various reasons, just for fairness reasons, frankly, from their perspective, don't think it's right to have one person, never mind 11 million people who get into this country illegally, have any chance at citizenship, even if it's what they call earned citizenship. Uh, Hi, uh, my name is Brett. Um, I'm a student um, at the college. I'm an undergrad student. I think you'll know exactly where I'm going with this in a minute. Um, Michelle Bachman had spoken at uh, CPAC, and you had the chance to catch up with her uh, afterward, I don't know how many people had the chance to, to see that clip. There. Would you would you just <laughs> maybe uh, recap for for anybody who didn't see and then explain? I mean, what was going going through your mind during, after, and well, just how that made you feel? Is, I really hope I don't pass out because I'm in. I really didn't realize that I'm not in very good shape until I was running after her in heels. Um, <laughs> she's very fast. She's unbelievable. So, in fact, I'll just tell you that that I was describing it to somebody as a walk and talk and one of my colleagues said oh no it was a huff and puff (laughs) (laughs) Um, so what happened was as you were saying she spoke at CPAC and she the whole beginning of her speech was about Benghazi which is kind of like you know typical classic conservative red meat because um, you know the the conspiracy theories and people have legitimate questions that they don't think have been answered on Benghazi but then the second part of her speech was all about the um, excesses of this president, how he's hunt the $1.4 billion presidency, and how he's spending all this money on, on, on uh, project, projection runners, and why can't he just uh, press play on his VCR or whatever, VCR, um, on his uh, DVD player or whatever, um, that he's a dog walker, and, and all these things that were, if not, the dog walker thing is just wrong, but things are just, just not in the right context because... Uh, Republican presidents had the same thing. I mean, just they, they, we spend a lot of money on our presidents. Um, in any event, so the Anderson Cooper show, they have this segment called Keeping the Modest. It's, it's their, one of their um, calling cards. And they also have had recurring things with Michelle Bachman starting back like two or three years ago, maybe even longer, when she came on their show and she said that the president was going on a trip to India and that cost $2 million, $200 million a day. And it was just, and apparently it, at the end of the day, we found out that she got that information from like a blogger in India or like a low level local politician who didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And she just found it on the internet. So and then there were a couple of other things since. So, so I was talking to the executive producer of the show who said, you know, did you see this Bachman thing? I said, yeah, can you find her? I, you know, I'll try. I, I called her office. I asked for an interview. I was told that she wasn't available. This was so the CPAC speech was on a weekend. This was on a Monday, and as I mentioned, the House generally doesn't come in until late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. And so I said no. And I knew that on Tuesday morning there would be a House Republican meeting because there is every week, and that would be a good way to find her. Um, so I staked her out. I saw her. She was late. She she was running down the hall to get in there. I said, Congresswoman, can I? talk to you on the way out. She said, maybe a five time. And then she ended up going. By the way, the hero in this whole thing is our cameraman, uh, Peter Morris, who was a- amazing in how he was able to keep up. Those cameras are not light. And um, so she came out, and I, was, I, just, I walked with her, and she didn't slow down at all. And she was walking, and I was asking her about the speech and blah, 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 and, and why, why did you mention the dog walker when they weren't really right? And then she just turned. Finally, she stopped, and she was very aggressively saying that her speech was not about Benghazi, and why was I asking her questions about the dog walker when four people are dead? And I was, it doesn't take a lot, as you can probably tell, or it does take a lot for me to be speechless. And I was like, huh? You're the one who brought this up. So it turned into kind of a moment that Jon Stewart picked up and Jay Leno and so forth. But I will say, to sort of lift the veil a little bit, to give you, give you a little bit of behind the scenes on how this happened, I mean, I, we had real editorial discussions, myself, my immediate supervisor, and the executive producer of, the sh- of, of Anderson's show, about how to do this and, well, first of all, whether to do it and then how to execute it on, on the air because you, you, the more oxygen we give to, to, to her making these, it, it's, it's, the, it's the rub. You want to keep her honest and, and ask her questions about things that aren't 
factually correct. But also, the minute you give it oxygen, and I chase her down the hall, and we put it on Anderson Cooper's show, the more it sort of lives, and what she is brilliant at, she's actually brilliant at a lot of things, but what she's really brilliant at is taking that, the kind of mainstream media is attacking me, and raising money off it. She's an unbelievable fundraiser. And uh, so we had discussions about that. And, and what we decided to do in the end was be transparent on the air and say that we had these discussions and say that we weren't sure how to handle it because we knew that it would probably result in her raising money off of it. But yeah, it was, it was definitely a moment. That's for Does sure. she have a political future? I think everybody has a potential political <laughs> future. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a Senate race in Minnesota. Al Franken's up. You think she could defeat Al Franken in Minnesota? I, I think she might want to run against Al Franken. Mm. <laughs> yes. Hi, my name is Cindy. I'm a first-year MPP student. Hi. Um, how, what's the process like for you to decide what to cover in terms of how does a Congress member ask you to cover their legislation? Well, it's, you know, there's no one answer to that. It's, it's, it's different every day and in every scenario. Um, sometimes it's really obvious. If there's a big piece of legislation on the House floor or the Senate floor, that's what we cover for the day or we find an angle that is most interesting or uh, that will affect people the most. Um, other times it is uh, driven by what, um, you know, if there, I mean, if there is an interesting personality involved in it, if there, uh, if, if there is an interesting, most times if there's an interesting or uh, if there's an interesting political ramification to what's going on, or a twist to the story. Um, sometimes it's a no-brainer, like uh, Senator Rob Portman called and said, um, or his press secretary called and said, um, Senator's going to come out again, uh, for gay marriage, and by the way, his son is gay. Can you come and interview him? I mean, yes. <laughs> sure. What time? We'll be there. Um, so th there's no one answer to it. And, um, and especially with a beat like Congress, I, I, there are, at, on any given day, there are, you know, 20 legitimate stories that we could be doing. So, so it's, it's, not, it's not easy to pick and choose. Hi, Dana. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is James. I'm a uh, well, technically third-year student here at the Kennedy School. Um, I'm wondering about, um, so I did an internship in the office of the First Lady a couple oh. years ago, and so got to see what a small world the um, Which First Lady? Michelle Obama? Michelle Obama, uh -huh. yeah. And um, I'm just wondering if you could kind of, and I know you alluded to a little bit of the differences between while working at the White House mm -hmm. and also um, in Congress, which is obviously a big campus, and, and mm -hmm. logistically it's very different. But can you can you com compare and contrast, and also maybe break down some common misconceptions on mm -hmm. on the two jobs? Because I think it seems to be very. I mean, the the camera makes everything look so so grand. And mm -hmm. to, to, when I was there, it just was there were a lot of misconceptions that that I think were debunked while I was there. And thanks for being here. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, well, I just 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 to kind of give you a a, a, a geographic you know, physical answer to that. When you're working in the White House, covering the White House, there, first of all, the, the White House press area was the pool, the actual swimming pool, which isn't, just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I'm sure there are times when people who work in the White House wish that there was water down there, but that's a different story. But so, so you're, so you sort of, you're in that area, which is kind of in the basement. Then there's the briefing room, which everybody sees on TV, and then there's really sort of one hallway right behind, like where you see the president and the press secretary come out. There's, there's one little room there with a few offices where the deputy press secretaries sit. And you walk up a ramp and to the left, and then that's where the press secretary, Jay Carney, now sits. And that's it. That's, that's the extent to, to you know, where, where we can walk, unless there's an event and you're escorted by White House staff and so forth. You can kind of see down the hall where the, the, the rope is that leads to the Oval Office, but like, that's it. And, and so, that's the physical difference between that and Capitol Hill, where you can walk everywhere. And when there's a vote, what they're there to do is vote. I mean, so every senator comes down, they come to the second floor of the Capitol, they walk through one of four doors to get to the Senate floor, and the culture is such that reporters, every time there's a vote, reporters just kind of fl go down to the second floor and talk to people. And um, most senators are, they get the culture and they talk to us. We're very limited in where we can have cameras, which is a different story, but, but we still have access to them. Same goes with the House side. Um, just by its very nature, you have 535 people and all their, all their staff to, to talk to. At the White House, you have, 
you don't sound like you pick up the phone and call the president. And, and never mind that, you have just a few people who are, gen who are in the know. So it's much more limiting. Wolf Blitzer has my favorite line of all time, which is, the White House is the best beat to say you covered. <laughs> and it's true. It's, 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 it's prestigious. It's, it is amazing. And I, what I loved about it and what I miss is the international travel and to really, particularly working for CNN, because we have CNN International, and I really get into the nitty-gritty of, 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 uh, of foreign policy. Um, uh, it's a great experience, but it is very constraining. And it doesn't matter if there's a Democrat in the White House or a Republican in the White House. It's just the nature of the building. Hi, um, I'm Alexandra. I'm also a first-year MPP student. Um, I'm just curious, since you've obviously you know, spent so much time around congressmen and women, um, and given the sort of background you gave about the changing sort of new normal, um, if someone were running for Congress, um, I'm sure a lot of my classmates are sort of interested in, in that, um, what advice would you give them, you know, sort of the, just from what you've observed, what's in today, what's making the most successful congressmen and women? Boy, that's an interesting question. Well, I will preface it by saying I'm definitely not in the advice business, political advice business. We got to get Axelrod and uh, and and uh, I don't know Gillespie in here. <laughs> but um, what I've just what I've observed is I think that the, what makes them the people who are successful the most successful. This is going to sound really cheesy, but is what makes everybody successful is that people are 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 people are true to themselves. And they are, they treat people well, and they take the time to get to know um, other people, and, 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 and that just doesn't have to do with other members of Congress, but obviously their constituents, and they're going to do well. Having communication skills is more important now than ever before. Um, you, you have to be able to, and I don't think it's so much that, you know, the, the rap that, that everybody gets is that you have to talk in a seven-second soundbite. It's not even so much that, it's just you have to talk like a person. I think the people now, because of the internet and because they're so much more um, exposed to so, to, to so much information, that I, I feel like, I mean, you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the, the smell test is much stronger and, and that people can sniff out uh, fakes and phonies. And so I think that people who are most genuine are most successful. Most genuine or best at acting genuine? Either one. <coughs> yeah. Great. No, that's a great point. No, I mean, Al Gore couldn't act sincere. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And John McCain, w one of the reasons why he did so well in 2000 is because of the Straight Talk Express, which d does, would not exist today and did not exist in 2008. I covered that campaign from start to finish, primarily because of Twitter and everything else I talked about. Well, Twitter wasn't there, but the internet and everything else. But um, but he, it, it's because he could joke around, and George Bush too. I mean, George Bush on the on the. If anybody's seen Peter and I were talking about this earlier, if anybody's seen Travels with George, you see the way he jokes around with people um, on the press plane. It's not just press, but he, it, it, it's the connection and the the ability to communicate, even if you don't care to at least mm -hmm. be able to fake it. Mm -hmm. Hi there, my name is Amber. I'm a first year master's student at the Kennedy School. My question is twofold, going back to something you started with about the need or lack thereof of relationships mm -hmm. between the members of Congress. Um, so first I want to ask, is there any interest um, from current legislators in building those relationships or having them across party aisles? Mm -hmm. And then um, if so, are there any incentives right now um, to actually compromise with each other because there seems to be a lot of disincentives mm -hmm. and say true to party cohesion. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering what you think about if there are incentives. I mean, immigration is, is just, of course, what comes to my mind because it's out there. That, that's an incentive, but it's born out of a political um, reality, particularly for Republicans right now, that they have to you know, get that off the table so that they can try to lure uh, Latinos back. The, the, to me, the best example of real cross-party relationships are the women in the Senate. It is fascinating. I've done several stories on it. And they're led by what they call the, their dean, um, and it's Barbara Mikulski, who now, by the way, is the first female appropriations chair in the Senate. And she has made it her business since the minute she went in and she was you know, given a lot of, 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 of hell for wearing pants on the Senate floor um, to get the women senators 
together. They have off the record, no staff, no nothing, dinners once a month. And they, some, maybe sometimes they talk about policy, but it's mostly about life and about husbands and about kids and about, you know, uh, parents and, and grandparents and all that stuff. And it really has made them understand each other. And it has allowed some of them who really disagree fundamentally on just about everything politically find areas where they work together. Um, example, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat from New York, Kelly Ayotte, Republican from New Hampshire. They agree on like nothing. They jog together every morning, talk about their kids, and they found places to work together um, primarily on trying to fix and deal with the issue of sexual assault in the military. And that's, uh, to me, I think maybe the prime example of where they do find different, they do find areas to work together and similarities um, because they've actually gotten to talk to each other. It's very interesting. I had not heard that before. Yeah, the women, the women in, in the house too, but there's, there's much more of a club. Mm -hmm. And now it's a big, it's 20 people, mm -hmm. bigger club. Yes, y'all over here. Sorry. Hi, uh, my name is Melissa. I'm a first year at the Kennedy School. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm really glad you shared that last story because uh, gender inequalities in our political system are something I feel very strongly about. Um, I'm actually not going to ask about that, though. I interned for Nancy Pelosi last summer. I was a fellow. I worked under someone who was working uh, in Washington for about 37, 40 years, and he echoed a lot of the same sentiments that you just said yeah. about why there is this very polarized system about yeah. you don't even have the same ends, much less the you know the same means. Mm -hmm. um, and two of the things that you mentioned about <coughs> Citizens United and then sort of the Internet, I just wanted to kind of question if, you know, Citizens United, Citizens United were to be reversed mm -hmm. or if the Internet were to have more of this cultural social acceptance, mm -hmm. would that then help change the playing field in a way that could allow um, a bit more cohesion in Washington? Maybe. I, I mean, I think that the, um, you know, Citizens United, look, things were, things were polarized before what was it? How many years ago was it? Three, four year, three, three or four years ago? Um, that just opened the floodgates of, of, of money. And actually, ironically, maybe I shouldn't have talked about Citizens United in that way because, ironically, it's actually made uh, members of Congress more powerless in their own political future because there's so much money and the money is going to super PACs and it's going to outside forces. And people who can write million-dollar checks to groups to take somebody down um, even when maybe their political opponent might not want that person to be taken down. Um, with regard to the Internet, sure. I mean, I think so. I, but you're not going to stop what I call, like, people sitting in, their, sitting in their pajamas anonymously sending really, you know, angry, vicious things, but suddenly getting followers on the Internet. You're not going to stop it from happening. We can all hope that the Internet can become as much or more of a place for good than it is for... Um, mischief, but uh, I think that has to do with more more of the us as human beings as a, as a society than anything else. Hi, my name is Bartek. I'm a first year student here at the Kennedy School. Um, I wanted to ask you about how you see the future of CNN as a station. There seems to be Colbert and Stewart seem to be making a lot of money on <laughs> making fun of CNN, sort of not taking a position on this very sort of this MSNBC in one corner, and then there's Fox News in the other. There seems to be sort of an identity crisis in this, with the CNN. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can let us know a few secrets, what sort of talks you have, and the, uh, <laughs> the cameras are off. Thank you. Um, I could tell you, but I know. I, um, no, I mean, I, I think that taking, not taking a position, thank God. Thank God, thank God we're not taking a position. Because there needs to be, MSNBC has a very specific, very um, uh, aggressive business model now, business model, to go to the left. And it's working for them because they found people who want to hear the echo chamber back to them. Fox has done the same thing, the echo chamber back to them, which by the way, if anybody has sort of looked at the, the autopsy of the last election, didn't serve Republicans so well because they didn't realize that there was a world outside of their own little world, many of them. We are trying to do both sides and trying to, to tell it like it is and to not, to not take sides. And we, when you ask about the future, at, at least in the near future, from everything that I'm told, we are determined to stay that way, which is amazing because there needs to be. Um, there needs to be the, the, the objective middle. Uh, 
and I think one of the great things about CNN is, you know, in this world of branding and, and, and business models, CNN has been able to, to survive and thrive because of our brand. And our brand has become, come to mean objective journalism. And it's, it's, it's very prominent and prevalent on the web, which you know, Peter writes for all the time, I write for all the time. And the reason why our internet site has done so well is because of that brand. And our advertisers pay for that brand. They, they, they are drawn to CNN, never mind ratings, but because they know that people who watch CNN are looking for a specific thing. And that's terrific. And from everything we are told, we are going to stay that way, which... Is there any sense that Jeff Zucker, the new boss there, is going to integrate CNN International and CNN Domestic in, in, in a more integrated way than it has been? I, I don't think, if there is, I don't know about it. And in the near future, it doesn't seem that way. Um, you know, he's much more, he's, much, he's very focused on, on kind of, um, on dealing with CNN Domestic, uh, first and foremost. CNN International is doing pretty well. Um, and uh, It's a very different It's a very different place. product. It's yeah. a very different product. Uh, but uh, it, it, well, actually, let me answer that question. I don't know if it's if it's how what the long term is. But if you watch during the day, there is a new show. It's like CNN Newsroom, the World. I think that's the name of it. It's at noon, and for the first time in a really long time, you have a domestic anchor, Suzanne Malveau, and an international anchor, anchor Michael Holmes, co-anchoring. So there is mm -hmm. a little bit more. That, I think that predated Jeff Zucker, but. Um, there is a little bit more, like it used to be back in the bad old days. And is headline news a part of this equation too? Headline news is doing very well, but it's 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 its own. When I first started on the air, I used to do live shots for CNN for headline news all the time. Um, but I don't really so much anymore. Sometimes I do, but they they do their own thing. I mean, they have and they're they're doing quite well. John, hi, I'm I'm John. I work for Alex. Um, thanks for coming, Dana. Um, I have two questions. One is about the, uh, well, we all know that the staff run the show uh, to some extent behind the scenes in, in Washington, the uh -huh. congressional staff. So I'm wondering, uh, I hear very little about how polarized are they and do they have friendships mm. across party yes. lines? Um, and um, and actually, uh, this is actually toward a larger question about sort of inputs that, that uh, all of these quote unquote dysfunctional politicians are getting. Um, there's a pretty good paper out of the New America Foundation uh, a couple weeks ago which said that Basically, the the policy options that a lot of um, Congress um, persons are getting are not that creative. Um, that the uh, the CBO scores things sure, and the Congressional Research Service is you know kind of does straight down the middle stuff, but it's not a kind of 21st century mm -hmm. um, apparatus that would suggest that they're getting a full range of policy options. And mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering, kind of on the staff side, you know, what sort of quality are you seeing? And then I guess. Do you think that there's a sophisticated enough operation behind the scenes that is resulting in policy? That's a really good question. That's a very sophisticated question, actually. No, it is, because it's, it's, it, it does. In fact, I was just talking to somebody that um, went out to dinner with the source yesterday, we were, and we were talking about the fact that um, senators in particular are, are, for the most part, are successful or not successful, are prominent or not prominent because of their own smarts and, and sophistication and savvy, but because they know how to get good staff together. Case in point, Chuck Schumer. The guy has always had phenomenal staff, phenomenal, whether it's on his committee staff or his personal staff, really top-notch, whip, whip, whip smart. Um, you know, he's doing pretty well for himself, <laughs> I, would, I would say. Um, the answer to your question about, oh, and, and so, so I think a lot of the, for example, the, I mean, I don't know if, if, it, if Schumer came up with this idea that they, they brokered on guest worker program, but it would not surprise me that one of his whip smart staffers did. So that's an example where, of where there are some new policy ideas. It's, you know, maybe low-hanging fruit, but there are new policy ideas. The answer to your question about um, staff knowing each other, yeah, I mean, they really do. Mostly, I think, at least the ones that I know about, uh, on a leadership level. I, I know a lot of Republican staffers who were really good friends with Democratic staffers. In fact, one Boehner staffer's roommate was a, was a um, Obama staffer. Who? I'm telling. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
really spying on each other? Yeah, no. I mean, they're really genuinely good friends. So, yes. They were not sleeping together. No, they were not. They were not. They definitely were not. <laughs> yeah, so it happens. Yeah. I wish you, would you talk a little bit more about CNN, about, about uh, how you see its uh, future and how it feels to be there right now? It feels good to be there right now. It really does. This is my 20th year at CNN. Gulp. And uh, so I have seen a lot of different CNNs. I started out when it was Ted Turner's CNN, where you know the the the, um, the news was the star. What do you see? The news were the star. We didn't. I didn't even know what ratings was because there was no Fox, there was no MSNBC. We weren't corporate. It was just completely different. And um, from that to to AOL, Time Warner, you know, and and lots of presidents and and different sort of personalities in between. And, and right now I feel there's definitely an energy that I have not felt in a very long time. And it feels very good to be there. And I'm not, this is not a corporate line because if you would have gotten me at any given point in the 20th years, I would have given you a different answer. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, I, and I definitely think part of it, a big part of it has to do with the fact that we have a new president and he's somebody who gets TV and he gets news, which is, it sounds so basic that it's, a critical combination, but you don't find it very much. Uh, it's very difficult to get both, and and he has a lot of respect for both. And w one of our problems, and I, I think I can say this without you know getting in any kind of trouble, is that we I think in the most recent years we've been so focused on on news and on getting the information out that we forgot that we're also television, and we kind of have to be keep people interested. And so I think that he has uh, a really good sense of how to do both, which, which makes people like me who love CNN and has, I've invested my whole professional career there, but also love, um, love the news, feel good. And I, but I, the thing about someone like me, I think, is a perfect example of, of the kind of viewer that, that we're looking for, which is that obviously I love politics, but I also watch Bravo. I also love, you know, reality TV and I also love pop culture and if we can get back to what used to be the more traditional newspaper where you have news, you have style, you have, you have sports, which is what our current management wants to do, I think all the better. Let me, let me open it up to all of you. If, uh, if you have a question, go to, go to the one of the mics. One of the things that has been um, talked about a lot, of course, is the prospect of change in the Congress with the next congressional elections. <laughs> mm -hmm. And although we seem to have just finished one election. It's never over. You're, you're, never you're looking very, I mean, I'm sure the people you work with every day are looking toward 2014. Mm -hmm. What do you think, how do you see that shaping up? Um, well, I think what, one of the big differences that, that we're seeing already is that for the very first time, since the president has been president, he doesn't have his own re-election to worry about. And so, and he is interested in having a Democratic Congress for the last two years of his presidency for obvious reasons. So already, um, Steve Israel, who runs the House Campaign Committee, and, um, and Senator Bennett, I mean, they've, they've gotten a lot more help from the White House. One of, the, one of the many knocks on President Obama from within his own party in Congress, which I heard time and time again, which is, which is like, it was that he came from here, he was a senator, but like, he doesn't care about us. Not that he doesn't care, maybe that's too strong, but that he's much more focused on what he wants to do than helping out our political future. That, that's, not, that's not the case anymore because his political future is entirely tied to theirs now. Um, and so he's already promised to do fundraisers and to help. Um, you know, the flip side of that is that uh, Republicans see that and hear the reports and so forth, and they say, okay, well, if he just wants to get Democrats elected, then he's not going to really compromise on the big things, which is, you know, usually in the months after an election, that's really the only time that you can get anything done because it's furthest away. Um, so I think that that dynamic is very, it feels different. It's very, very different. And do you see this as shaping up as a... Um, a calculated effort to genuinely win, say, the House for the Democrats, so they would control both. Both. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. is that a realistic prospect? Uh, sure, I think anything's realistic. I mean, if we would have sat here at this time before 2010, when Democrats had 
an unbelievably huge cushy majority and said Republicans were going to take over, we would have all, everybody would have walked out of the room saying these people have no idea what they're talking about. So anything is possible in today's day and age because just like the news cycles are fast, the, the, the pendulum swings so much faster mm -hmm. because people, it's over in a fast food nation and people's patience wears, wears thin with, 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 with uh, whomever's in power. Um, and they're not that far apart seat-wise. Um, I can't remember what the, I should know this, what the, um, what the spread is right now, but, it's, but Democrats have, have 201 or 202 now. Do I have that right? But, you're, you're um, but, but, but I think it's, and, and the president, you know, Republicans give the president um, crap for it, but the, one of the first calls he really did make after his acceptance speech was to Steve Israel and to Nancy Pelosi saying, okay, I'm in, I'm all in, how can I help? Well, what, is, is part of your beat keeping track of the effort by, for instance, Democrats and Republicans to recruit candidates mm -hmm. to run against the opposition? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't have as much time as I would like to because I think that's fascinating. Uh, I mean, Ashley Judd just made a lot of news because she's Ashley Judd. Um, but uh, but that's, that is what's going on as we speak, the recruiting. And that is everything. Let me just ask Rahm Emanuel, who back in 2006, 2005, 2006, said, okay, we're not just going to recruit people who want to run because they think that they're good Democrats. We're going to recruit people who actually could win in those districts. And that's why he, when he brought a lot of the conservative Democrats who are now gone. But um, so recruiting is everything, everything, everything. And that's absolutely fascinating. to Were you surprised at Ashley Judd? No. I wasn't surprised. The Democratic Party was not thrilled about her, her, her running... Not running, not running in general. I mean, in fact, I was talking to somebody who's who had met with her and said she's really smart, but she's also a Hollywood liberal who wanted to run in the red, red state of Kentucky against the Republican leader, which just would not. And she's a graduate of the Kennedy School of Government. There you go. <laughs> Hi, good afternoon. I'm Aubrey, I'm first year master's student here at the Kennedy School. My question goes back to the discussion um, around international news versus domestic news. And I'm wondering what you think why mostly the domestic audience here in the U.S. Um, focus more on domestic news. Mm -hmm. And especially for CNN, a lot of the primetime news coverage is not really an international angle. Um, and specifically, if you could talk about that in the context of what you think the media plays in terms of um, appealing to what consumers want to mm -hmm. hear in terms mm -hmm. of the news versus telling consumers mm -hmm. what they should know. It's all, I mean, that look, that historically is always the, 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 the rub in any newsroom, in any TV show, in any, um, you know, magazine or newspaper, what they want versus what you think they should want. Um, I, I actually think that if you, if you watch CNN primetime, particularly Anderson Cooper's show, there's more international news than you might even realize. When there's something going on internationally, something that's even sort of remotely significant, he goes. He was, you know, this Syria, Egypt, Iran. I mean, obviously he wasn't in Syria and, and Iran, but he was in Egypt. And, um, and they played up big. And um, so I still feel like, no, Libya. Um, I still feel like when the bell rings, we're there. The, the issue is when the bell's not ringing as loudly and things are happening globally. Um, it, it's just, I don't know, it always has fascinated me about Americans in general. Americans, the reason why Europeans speak four or five languages and we speak English. The reason, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, I think if you, go, if you go abroad anywhere, people who are not Americans tend to be more interested in the world around them than Americans. And it is up to us to find that, us in the media to find that balance. But I think because we, CNN, have such an international presence and we have seen an international, which you know, ABC, the networks just don't have that kind of, of, of muscle internationally that we kind of, it just sort of happens organically that we do more, more international news. John. Uh, John Reedy, Shorenstein Advisory Board. Uh, uh, slightly switching gears, but thinking about the Senate and the D.C. Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, uh, the, uh, everybody says that Justice uh, Ruth Ginsburg is quote-unquote frail and um, you know, the theory is that she's probably going to retire. Um, uh, and uh, the second question is there are now, uh, I think, four vacancies on the very important D.C. Court of Appeals. And uh, is it likely that the Senate uh, could actually filibuster and kill 
uh, any nomination for the Supreme Court that the president comes up with? And is there any chance that we're going to get any nominees, uh, anybody named to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which I think is the second most important court mm -hmm. in the country? So it's really about Obama and the Senate, mm -hmm. and uh, how does that all play out? Well, because the Senate can't do anything with it, a gang. You know, there was the Gang of Eight that did immigration. There was uh, the Gang of, I think, I think it was six that did health care that didn't go anywhere. The Gang of 14, back however many years ago now, um, came up with a, with with rules that they sort of still abide by when it comes to the Supreme Court. So the chances of, of, of an actual genuine filibuster for a Supreme Court nominee are, are not out of the question, but I think that they're slimmer than others. The, 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 the appellate court, all of that, I mean, that's, that is always an issue. When you talk about the base, and not just the conservative base, but the, but the, um, the Democratic base too, they understand the way the, 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 the go our government works and that so much of the social issues that they care about will be determined by the courts, not by the Congress. So, I mean, I cannot tell you how many stories I did when Bush was president, Obama's president, about the other party filibustering or holding up judges. It's just, it, it is where the base in each party really stakes their claim. Um, so it's hard to answer that question, but at a certain point, it kind of bubbles up to the top where we're, we are doing stories about it, and um, that tends to break the logjam or at least change the dynamic. But uh, but it is it is a perennial issue, and it really is both parties, for sure. Hi, th thanks so much for being here. I'm Irv, just a neighbor. Um, my real question deals with the budget and what's, what you think may happen, in, in, at least on the individual tax issue, where the Republicans are saying you've already got your tax mm -hmm. increase, which in fact he has, mm -hmm. at least to a certain extent. But my pure curiosity asks, because you were talking about the Congress people as individuals, mm -hmm. to what extent do they <coughs> reflect America, where it's reported that 50% or more of the population do not believe in evolution. Oh, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I've not, I've not polled members. Your, your question is specifically about evolution? No, about oh. the budget. The budget is what oh, the oh, the budget. Oh, oh, oh. As an individual, do you think they do or don't believe in evolution? I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't. I, I. I want to say that I will look into that, but that will be a very hard thing to look into. I don't think there's anyone even now who could run on an I don't believe in evolution platform. No, could there they? are. It depends on where they are. Really? There aren't, there aren't very many districts, but there are some. There are some. There are some. Um, so uh, the answer to the, to the question, and that is really the fundamental question going forward, is the taxes. I mean, talk about the classic philosophical difference between the parties. Increase taxes, cut taxes, cutting taxes will spur the economy. No, it won't. It's just going to go to the rich people. I mean, it's just, it doesn't get any more vintage than that. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of Democrats, I will tell you, who, uh, on Capitol Hill, who were not thrilled um, with the way the White House cut the deal on the fiscal cliff, which led Republicans to say, okay, enough, you got your tax increases, because they saw the future coming and they saw Republicans were going to say, look, we agreed to some taxing, $600 billion in tax increases, we're done. No more. No more. And um, that's why it, it was actually interesting. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's the DNC chair, also member of Congress from Florida, like a nanosecond after the House approved the fiscal cliff deal at 2 in the morning on New Year's Day, she came right up to me and she said, and I almost did, because I was so bleary, I almost didn't get what she was saying. She came up, we're not giving up on tax. Just so you know, we just had a meeting. We're not giving up on taxes. I was like, huh? And then a second later, one of Boehner's guys came up to me. We were sort of in the hallway right off the House floor, uh, off the, uh, next to the House chamber. said, if Democrats think that they're going to get more tax increases, then they're living on another planet. And I was like, really? Can we just, like, finish this? <laughs> but so everybody got it right away. Let me ask you one final question. It's about the sort of the news environment that you've lived with now since your whole, well, your whole professional career. What is the sort of the news hierarchy in Washington now? I mean, 
with the Washington Post perceived to be mm. in some disarray, the New York Times, Politico, uh, blogs of various kinds, the cable systems, the, you know, Bloomberg, how, what? what That's how? a really good question. I, I think it's completely scrambled from when, you know, from the bad old days when obviously it was the New York Times, the Washington Post, and then, you know, kind of everybody else. Um, I, I, I think that there, because of the economics of the news business, because of the internet, because everybody can get everything, um, it is, it, you can have as much power as a reporter for, I don't know, Bloomberg, which is up and coming, which many non-Wall Street people never even looked at before, as you can the New York Times. I think it's totally scrambled, and I think for the most part that's a good thing. Dana, we've loved having you. Thank you Thank very you. much. This was just great. Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you.